partake in the corn crakes arsake, you naked Jacobs. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. If you're a new listener, maybe consider listening to some earlier podcasts so that you can familiarise yourself with the lore of this podcast. If you're a regular listener, you know the crack. I hope you've all had a magnificent week. It's been ferociously chilly. I felt my first frost this morning. I had to wear a jacket when I was running. I've started to wear double socks. It's double socks weather. Those big woolen indoor socks. That are quite amazing really, aren't they? Like you'd be fucking freezing. Your hands and your head. And then you just put on these massive socks. And all of a sudden you feel like the heat's been turned on. I may even get acquainted with a hot water bottle. Why not? the fuck else am I going to be doing? So, a tiny little correction... At the start of last week's podcast, I was plugging a gig uh, in Cork on the fucking 28th and 29th of December. And I said to you that I was gigging in the Cork Opera House on the 28th and 29th of December. It's actually not the Cork Opera House. Thank fuck. It's St. Luke's Church. I got it wrong and I'm actually glad to find out that it's St. Luke's Church because I was thinking, how the fuck am I supposed to sell two Cork Opera Houses in a month. That's a huge amount of tickets. How the fuck am I supposed to do that? So I'm quite glad to hear that I'm doing two live podcasts on the 28th and 29th of December in St. Luke's Church in Cork, which is, I think it's only like 400, 400 seats in St. Luke's Church. So they'll be quite nice. I've, I've played that venue a few times. Really lovely, intimate little venue in Cork. And like I said, the 28th and 29th of December, they're lovely days because it's after Christmas and before New Year's, you might have a little bit of a hangover. No one's expecting you to go mad on those days. So come along to a nice, relaxing live podcast. Also as well, my Vicar Streets. When are they? Fucking March, is it? I should just... Why don't I just check when the fuck my gigs are on before I decide to announce them on the podcast? Why don't I just do that? You wouldn't catch Brezzy doing that. I bet you Brezzy knows when his fucking gigs are. I'm doing two Vicar Streets. I think it's in March. And then what else? Bristol. I forgot about this. Again, I don't know the fucking date. Or if the tickets are even announced. If you live in Bristol, which is over in England. I'm I'm doing a a very small little gig in in early January. uh, With Maxim from The Prodigy doing a little interview with Maxim from The Prodigy, a live podcast in some theatre. <laughs> in some theatre somewhere. I don't know, man. Just type it into Google. I don't even know if it's announced yet. Fuck it. That's my thing. That's my edge. That's my talent. I'm, sh- I'm shit-, shit at uh, advertising my own gigs. All right? I've maintained that tradition since the start of the podcast. Let's not go changing things. I've reduced my gigs in general by about 75%. So I really, I don't have an excuse this time. It's not like there's a lot of gigs for me to be talking about. I, I gigged Bristol before. I've gigged Bristol a couple of times. My, the most memorable one, however, and it always sticks in my memory. I gigged in Bristol on a, on a ship. On a, on a big metal moored ship. It was rubber bandits days around 2015. And, and I keep having dreams about this gig. 
I was obviously terrified. Yeah, I was. I wasn't. So, I'm there on this big metal ship doing songs. And it was a late night fucking bandits gig when I was in my 20s and mad late night jumping up and down shit. And the crowd were mad jumping up and down. And I remember I'm there singing a rave song about doing ecstasy with the ghost of Eamon de Valera. And at the end of the song, there's a breakdown. And then it just explodes into this mad, hard fucking rave. And I remember just dreading it. Because as soon as that bit kicks in, the whole audience starts jumping up and down. But then I'm like, we're on a fucking ship, will you stop? So the whole ship that I'm doing a gig on in Bristol starts swaying side to side. And I wasn't comfortable with it at all. And then afterwards, <laughs> someone came up to me, this posh English hippie with a larcher on a length of twine, offers me a gig. And I'm like, okay, grand, do you have a phone number? And they're like, no, we don't use phones. Here, here's the number of a, a phone box that we might be in next month on this date. And if you ring it at this time, then we can discuss this gig. Yeah, they were in the front row and they were throwing cider on us like wet cider throwing it on us and not in a mean way in a, in a kind of this is how we show appreciation to the performer way I think the dog was in the audience as well and I don't know see I don't know if that part actually happened or if it's part of my recurring dream about the gig in Bristol but yeah at least three times a year I, I dream about being on stage in that gig in Bristol on a fucking ship and the entire room swaying from side to side as everyone dances. And me then being terrified of my own songs. In case they sink us. Fuck me. So yeah, I'm back gigging Bristol. Not sure when. Sometime in January. Don't know where. It's definitely with Maxim from The Prodigy. I'm really looking forward to that. I wouldn't mind going back to that venue, that boat venue. I'd love to see. Who would I like to see there? Boys Life. <laughs> it's this big rusty metal ship I want <laughs> I want to see Brian McFadden and Keith Duffy of Westlife and Boys On together as Boys Life I want to see them perform on that ship and it's never going to happen because they're not going to play that venue so I'm going to have to hijack an airplane like that Irish priest did in the 80s when he wanted the third secret of Fatima I get onto an airplane and pretend I have a bomb and say that my demands are that uh, Boy's Life perform on this rusty, swaying ship in Bristol. Actually, speaking of Keith Duffy, um, I found this photograph on my phone a few weeks back. You'd have seen, If you follow me on Instagram, Blind by Boat Club, you'd have seen me posting it a few weeks back. But I found this photograph in my phone from like 2017, I think. So I went on to some radio station in Ireland. It was News Talk or Today FM or something. I can't remember. And I was being interviewed on this radio station. And they asked me, are there any traditional desserts in Limerick? There's not. I can't think of any traditional Limerick desserts. But for the laugh, I just made one up on the spot. And I said to the radio station, oh yeah, we have a traditional dessert in Limerick called the Sarsfields Gannet. And it's gelatinized cider with a Kit Kat crumbled on top. Now I said it to amuse myself. 
but I did present it as if it was actual fact. And, and I came up with, like, uh, history behind it and everything. I said that, like, oh, yeah, this dessert goes all the way back to the times of Patrick Sarsfield, and the Siege of Limerick. And it's called a Sarsfield's Gannet because a gannet was the favourite bird of Patrick Sarsfield. And anyway, the fucking radio station, they must have believed me and took it dead seriously. So I got off the radio, had a little chuckle to myself, forgot about it. And then like three days later, Keith Duffy from Boyzone came into the radio station to do an interview. And it was his birthday. (laughs) And they fucking, they made him one of these fake Limerick desserts. A Sarsfield's gannet. Some poor cunt had to stay up overnight trying to gelatinise cider. And it worked. And they had it in a little glass. The gelatinised cider with a Kit Kat crumbled on top. And they made Keith Duffy take a photograph with it with his big smiley face and posted the photo. (laughs) And I found it on my phone last week. (laughs) But yeah, Keith Duffy. Keith Duffy and uh, Brian McFadden. I'm going to hijack an airplane if you don't perform in that big metal boat in Bristol. I should really get Keith Duffy onto the podcast at some point, shouldn't I? Because our paths have crossed several times over the years in in bizarre ways like really bizarre ways there's that story there where he ended up getting presented a, a fake dessert that I made up on a radio station then do you remember I did a full podcast about this like we were gigging in Edinburgh seven or eight years ago we were gigging in Edinburgh on Paddy's Day with Boyzone in this fucking Irish pub and we were backstage with boys on. It was it was me, Keith Duffy, and fucking Shane Lynch. <laughs> and we were backstage in the green room. And it was across the way from a block of student flats. And while we were inside in the green room, all of us just saw this. F- <laughs> just saw this fellow wanking at his laptop. <laughs> and they're like, I'm here in a fucking room with boys on watching some fella across the way wanking at his laptop. I did a full podcast on that. And then what other? I had a recent run-in with Keith Duffy then online. It was actually a really nice one. He was on Instagram and it was it was his son's birthday. His son was turned 25. And Keith Duffy just posted this, this really fucking lovely post. It was just really lovely. It was just him... And his son and Keith Duffy just going out. This is my son. He's 25. I'm so proud of him. And it was so lovely. It was just really, really fucking nice. And then. And so then I posted underneath it. I just posted a genuine comment going. He's really lucky to have a nice father like you, Keith. Because I meant it. It was a lovely post on his son's 25th birthday. And then I got a, I got a DM from Keith Duffy. After that at about three in the morning after he'd had a couple of bottles of wine. Telling me that him and his son were up watching Rubber Bandits videos on YouTube. And I think he'd seen the song, the Rubber Bandits song, Boys On, for the first time. And that song was actually written because of something Keith Duffy had said to us when we were in Edinburgh gigging with Boys On. Uh, he, gave it, he gave us a compliment. It was a compliment but it was an insult but he didn't mean it as an insult. It was a it was it was a compliment. But he said, uh, 
ye should come on tour with us. Ye should come on tour with Byzone. We've got nothing to lose. <laughs> Christ. I have a, a fierce thoughts of the giggles. Fierce thoughts of the giggles today. Um, but yeah, I'd love to have Keith Duffy on the podcast. I bet you we'd have good crack, good chats. He's, he's, he's a lovely fella. So yeah, this 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 week's podcast isn't about uh, Boy's Life or Boy's Own or Bristol. This is another hot take history slash art podcast. I'm going to speak about an illuminated manuscript from the 12th century. It's a body of work that I touched on in one of my earliest podcasts. But I only gave it about 10 minutes. And it really deserves a lot more because it's quite important. So I'm speaking about an, an illuminated manuscript called Topographia Hibernica, which was written by Gerald Cambrensis, or Gerald of Wales, as he's known. The book was written in 1188, just 10 years after Ireland was invaded by the Normans, or the Brits, as we called them, but in 1188 they were the Normans. And this illuminated manuscript is, is hugely important because... It was written as a piece of topography. Topography is like a book of maps, a book which describes the geography of a land. It was presented as that. But really what it is, it was a big pile of fake news that justified the colonisation of Ireland. And the hot take that I have is that this 12th century illuminated manuscript is actually the beginning, the genesis of British tabloid newspapers. It's a book that I thoroughly enjoy. I love reading it. Why? It was originally written in Latin, which means that the English translation of it is absolutely beautiful. You can read it perfectly like it was published today. It does contain some interesting history about Ireland. It contains descriptions of nature in Ireland at the time. Animals that aren't around anymore. Landscapes that don't exist anymore. And then alongside that, it contains utterly outrageous, bizarre and horrifying claims about the Irish people that I just find fucking fascinating. And I'm going to go through the best ones with you. Now, before I go into detail about the actual illuminated manuscript itself, I'm going to give some historical context to when it was created, a brief historical context. Now, I'm not a historian. Academically, I'm not a historian. I am academically qualified in art history and art critique. Um, I'm qualified to lecture in it in third level. I'm by no means an expert, but I have a, a certain degree of professional authority around art history. Regarding any history, history stuff I say, I'm saying that from the position of a layman. And But everything I say, I make sure that my sources are from solid, decent academic sources. And apologies if I get something wrong on the history side of things. So Ireland, from about the year 500 onwards, after the arrival of St. Patrick when Christianity had been introduced to Ireland. Ireland spent seven, several centuries in a golden age of literature, of art, of education. Britain at that time 
was experiencing the collapse of the Roman Empire. A lot of literature was being lost. A lot of technology was being lost. A lot of infrastructure was being lost. Britain was experiencing what you'd call a dark age when the Anglo-Saxons were arriving. But Ireland was doing fucking brilliantly. We had monastic towns, churches. There was Clan McNoise, Glendalough. And there were centres of education in these places that were teaching Latin, Irish, philosophy, theology, law. And these monasteries were producing absolutely incredible illuminated manuscripts. By which I mean, think of the Book of Kells. Religious books, historical books that were some of the best art being created in Europe at the time. The two places in Europe that were flourishing from about the year 500 up to the year 1000 would have been Ireland and the Islamic Caliphate of Spain. But the areas that were under Roman rule, such as Britain, were in a state of economic, infrastructural and intellectual collapse. Now this is a very generalised history, but the Irish monasteries in Ireland in general had been so advanced and so prosperous that Christianity in Ireland was becoming quite independent, standing on its own two feet. By the mid-1100s, Ireland had kind of nearly severed ties with Canterbury in England, which was the seat of Christianity over in England. Ireland also was becoming so independent that it was beginning to kind of piss off Rome a little bit. The Roman Catholic Church. By the 1150s, it was becoming kind of a rumour in Rome that Ireland wasn't really Christian. That really what Ireland was were, we were a big bunch of pagans who kind of pretend that we're Christian. Like Ireland would have had a lot of petty kingdoms, lots of different kings. And the accusations were put against like the kings of Ireland that they're, they're actually just pagans. They're performing pagan rituals. They don't observe Christian traditions of marriage. They're fucking performing incest. All of this shit was being said about Ireland until it eventually got to the Pope. Now in 1066, the Normans had conquered England. They'd taken England from the Anglo-Saxons. The Normans were Vikings that had conquered a part of France. And basically, the Normans are the start of what we call the Brits. Okay? Like, the English royalty today, they trace themselves back to 1066, to the Normans. In 1155, the Norman King of England was called Henry II. And also at that time, the Pope happened to be English. The only ever English Pope, his name was Adrian. You can see where this is going. So the English Pope, Adrian, said to the English King, Henry... Those fucking Irish cunts need some colonising. Need to colonise those Irish cunts. What are you at? Now his exact words were. You may enter that island and do there what has to do with the honour of God and the salvation of the land. And may the people of that land receive you with honour and revere you as their Lord. Dearest son in Christ. You want to subject its people to the laws and to root out from it the weeds of vice. Extend the boundaries of the church, restrain vice, correct morals, implant virtues, increase the Christian religion, 
you may enter that island. So that's the English Pope, 1155, saying to the English king, go and colonise Ireland. You need to do it for God because they're fucking pagans and they're fucking each other and they're doing whatever. Take over Ireland, colonise it. And that document there is known as the Lord Billiter. And it's a document that historians are continually fighting over. Some people saying it did exist, some people saying it didn't exist. But it's basically instruction and permission from the Pope to England to invade Ireland. You can think of it a little bit like, do you remember when America invaded Iraq in 2003? And when they were justifying invading Iraq, they went to the Brits and said to the Brits, can you prove that Saddam Hussein has got weapons of mass destruction? And then the Brits said, yeah, yeah, MI5 have proof that Saddam has got weapons of mass destruction. It's okay to invade Iraq. So then they invaded Iraq and then afterwards it actually turned out that, oh shit, MI5 didn't have any proof at all of weapons of mass destruction. They'd actually quoted um, some Californian PhD student who'd just written some shit to justify war. And actually this war isn't justified at all. You invaded on the grounds of a lie, basically. Well, that's what that is. That's what the papal Lord Billiter was in 1155. It was fake news. There was no proof that Ireland was this big heathen nation that were like was secretly not Christian and was really pagan. That wasn't the case at all. It's Ireland was the land of saints and scholars. It was renowned in the known world. It was a centre of education. It was exporting its fucking monks and clerics all around the gaff. Ireland was highly respected. The problem was is that the Christian church in Ireland was doing so well that it was getting a little bit independent, a little bit scary, a little bit dangerous for Rome. So Rome were like, get the paddies in check. The Catholic Church, we fucking run this shit from here. So listen, Brits, go in and invade those cunts. Doesn't matter at all if it's true or not. Like in 2003, like that had nothing to do with 9-11. That had nothing to do with weapons of mass destruction. It was America and Britain going... Fuck, all the oil is running out in the world. And there's loads of it in Iraq. So we're not letting them control it. We have to control it. That's what the invasion of Iraq was about. Anyone with a brain knew it at the time, but it's clear as day now. So back to 1155. So like 20 years later, it took 20 years later, Henry and Strongbow and the Normans invaded Ireland. And that's the beginning of the 800 years of colonisation. That's how the Brits came over. It's a, it's a lot more complicated than that. The Brits were also invited over by the King of Leinster. I'm not going to get into that, but that right there. Ireland was invaded on the back of kind of fake news. A little bit like how Iraq was invaded with the WMDs. Except Ireland wasn't being accused of having WMDs. It was accused of kings marrying their sisters and shit. So... Ireland gets conquered by the Normans around 1170. They came from Wales, alright? They were Cambro Normans, led by Strongbow. They had huge army, cavalry, archers. There wasn't even much of a fight. They just kind of took Ireland. So this manuscript I want to focus on for this podcast, Topographica Hibernica, who was the person who wrote it? Well, Geraldus who wrote it, right, Gerard of Wales, he took two trips to Ireland in 1183 and 1186. Now, he wasn't 
he wasn't a soldier, he wasn't a knight, he wasn't taking over Ireland by violent force. But he was on a ship with lads that were, and he was related to most of them. Gerald was a clerk, he was an intellectual, a historian. He was coming to Ireland 10 years after it being conquered to on a fact-finding mission. His job was to write this big book about what Ireland is, the history of Ireland, the animals of Ireland, the geography of Ireland, the culture and people of Ireland, but really to create this document that denotes the cultural superiority of his culture over the culture that's being colonised to construct a superior national identity. We are the Brits and we're superior and we're brilliant and these Irish are fucking mad savages. What we're doing is right and here's why. Like to use the Iraq war metaphor again, when the US invaded Iraq and they're like, we're here invading Iraq to bring democracy, to get rid of these weapons of mass destruction. We're here on an ideological journey to make Iraq a better place and that's why the troops are here. Well, also who went over with the Americans were like huge corporations like Halliburton who received massive contracts to rebuild Iraq and to make money off all that oil. So they were the corporate interests who were there to profit hugely from the invasion of Iraq. Well, Gerald and his relatives were a bit like that. We're here to introduce Christianity to this heathen land, but really, we're fucking Welsh Normans and we're going to get fuckloads of land and we're going to get really, really wealthy by colonising this island. So, like, Gerald was, he was the son of William de Barry, who was a really powerful Norman lord. His grandmother was a princess. She was a mistress of King Henry I. She founded the Fitzstevens, the Fitzgeralds, the Fitzhenry families. Names that we would now think of as Irish, like Fitzgeralds. The, like, Fitz means fee from French, it means son of. So, a lot of names that are now Irish were actually Norman names, the Norman invaders. So Gerald's well connected, he's well related. But like I said, Gerald isn't, Gerald's not conquering Ireland with a sword, he's conquering Ireland with ideology. Gerald invented anti-Irish racism. That's what Gerald did. By writing this massive book, Topographica Hibernica. And what makes the book really unique as well is Gerald illustrated it himself, which was very, very rare at the time. Some people consider him the to be the first writer to illustrate his own book and he illustrated it in a unique way in that he used the margins so you'd have a block of text talking about something and then on the margins to the side Gerald would draw little caricatures and cartoons of the Irish people and the animals and by doing this what he's doing is he's nearly inventing sensationalism This is why I'm considering this to be the roots of the British tabloid. So when you start to read the Topographica Hibernica, what what makes it, what's so clever on Gerald's part is that the first half opens with quite a detailed and academic account of, we'll say, the geography and the animals of Ireland. And it's lovely to read because it's like, this is someone speaking about what Ireland looks like in the 11th century. And he says, Ireland is a country of uneven surface and mountainous. The soil is moist, well wooded and marshy. It is truly a desert land without roads, but well watered. 
Here you may see standing waters on the tops of mountains for pools and lakes are found on the summits of lofty and steep hills. There are in some places very beautiful plains, though of limited extent in comparison with the woods. Now what's lovely to read there is... Ireland used to be a temperate rainforest. Like, it's mad to think of it now. Like, if you're ever on an airplane going over Ireland, then it's nothing but fields and fields and fields. That's not the way Ireland is supposed to be. Ireland was a huge, giant rainforest with not that many fields and pastures. As Gerald describes, he's just like there's woods and woods and woods. And a huge thing that when we were colonised by the British, we were used as a way for them to extract timber. All our, our woods were cut down and cleared and made way for... for uh, the, the wood was taken and it was pasture lands for cows and cattle to be exported. It started with the Normans. It got particularly aggressive around the, the 1500s. But we were used as like England's back garden where you could chop down all the wood and then pasture your cows and grow your crops. Gerald lists out loads of fucking animals, hawks, sparrows, different types of fish. He speaks about eagles, eagles that are now extinct. He goes into great detail about Irish beavers and beavers building dams of wood around rivers, which is wonderful to read because the, the Irish beaver is gone, long extinct. He makes mention of the Wolves, the Irish wolf, that's gone as well. Now, but the thing is, Gerald visited Ireland twice, spent a couple of months here twice, so he didn't do as much travelling around the country as he would lead you to believe. He himself would have uh, spoken to a lot of people in Ireland, asked people who were experts in the topography of Ireland at the time, lads working in monasteries, priests, and said, look, tell me about what the country is like, and he would appropriate a lot of their knowledge he only really spent time in, in Cork, Waterford, Dublin. He went around me the little bit. So he's telling fibs. He's pretending that he saw a lot of shit with his own eyes when he didn't. He's consulting texts in monasteries and having conversations with people who are experts in Irish topography at the time. And you can kind of tell because there's certain parts where clearly someone is bullshitting him for the laugh. Because in amongst all this detailed information about Irish trees and rivers and fish and animals, he starts to write about a type of bird called a barnacle bird. And this is also one of the first drawings that you see in Gerald's text. And it's this utterly ridiculous drawing of a tree with birds hanging off it. And Gerald claims that there are likewise here many birds called barnacles, which nature produces in a wonderful manner out of her ordinary course. They resemble the March geese, but are smaller, being at first gummy excrescences from pine beams floating on the waters and then enclosed in shells to secure their free growth. They hang by their beaks like seaweed attached to the timber. So Gerald claims that there's birds in Ireland that grow from eggs that hang from trees and then the birds themselves hang from trees and that people in Ireland eat them on holy days because they're neither fish nor meat. No, I think that's someone lying to Gerald. I think Gerald, that's some monk in a monastery who's really clever. And this monk says to himself, 
You fucking Norman cunt. I know exactly what you're doing here, writing this shit about Ireland. I know why you're here, you conquering bastards. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you about otters and beavers and then I'm going to make up some bullshit about geese that grow on trees and you're going to believe me, you stupid Welsh cunt. The reason I get that vibe is that Gerald included the story about the barnacle geese in the first half of the book. The first half of Gerald's book, and this is what makes it so clever, he's establishing his authority. It's it, it, when you read the first half of, of this book, it's really interesting. It sounds totally legitimate. It's really surprising the amount of detail about nature and geography that's present in a book from the 11th uh, or the 12th century. It's really phenomenal to read. And Gerald did this deliberately. Establishes authority and consent at the start before he starts completely lying and going into propaganda territory. So it's only about halfway through the book then that it starts getting really weird and Gerald starts deliberately making bizarre claims about Ireland to set it up as a lawless, uncontrollable, savage and magical, evil magical land. He speaks about Ireland's relationship with the moon. He begins by correctly talking about the relationship that the moon has with, with liquids and tides you know he speaks about how the moon can control the tides but then he says it's the entire source and cause of motion in liquids the marrow and the bones the brains and the head the juices of trees and plants in proportion to its increase or decrease hence when the moon ceases to be luminous you would find all animate nature shrink but when she is again round and shining in full the marrow fills the bones Hence, it is that those that are called lunatics who suffer every month by the excessive action of the brain. So Gerald is claiming basically that in Ireland, when the moon is dim, every living creature, including humans, shrinks a little bit. And the moon causes the liquid in an Irish person's brain to shrink. So we go mad once a month. Then he writes about the women of Ireland. Gerald claims that certain women in Ireland have the ability to turn into hares like rabbits and the reason certain women in Ireland turn into hares suddenly is so that they can quickly chase down pregnant women as hares jump up quickly suck the tits of a pregnant woman and steal a mouthful of milk and then he comes back from that and then starts talking about nature again And he just throws that in. Those two mad things. People in Ireland shrink when the moon is low and the women turn into fucking rabbits and suck tits. And then he's back into rational territory. So that's just the beginning of when this book starts going absolutely batshit mad. And you see the the roots of of anti-Irish racism in this book. Before I get into the, the juicier, absolutely bonker shit, um, let's have a little a little pause. Don't have the ocarina again this week. I've got the shaker. Let's have a shaker pause. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. That was the shaker pause. You would have heard an advertisement there for something I don't know. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. This podcast is my full time job. It is a monologue essay that requires a huge amount of work, work that I thoroughly enjoy and that I adore and love doing. But if you're listening to this podcast and you enjoy it, and you listen to it frequently, please consider paying me for the work that I'm doing. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. If you're taking something from this podcast and you're like, wow, I'd, I'd buy Blind Boy a cup of coffee or a, or a pint if I met him in real life. Well, you can. If you can't afford to do that, don't worry about it. You can listen for free. And the person who's paying is paying for you to listen for free. It's a lovely model that's based on kindness and soundness. Everyone gets the same podcast. I earn a living. What more could you want? The Patreon model also keeps this podcast fully independent. I speak about whatever I want to speak about. No advertiser can tell me what to speak about. No advertiser can adjust or contribute to my content in any way. No one advertises on this podcast if I don't want them to. This is fully independent and Patreon keeps it that way. Like the podcast, share it, recommend it to a friend, leave a review. This stuff's really important for an independent podcast. Don't just do this for my independent podcast. Any independent podcast that you listen to, any podcast that has a small team of people making it, that are passionate about what what they're doing. Over the pandemic, loads of big, huge name celebrities were out of work. So they decided, fuck it, let's make some podcasts. Backed by corporate money. Now that's fine, they're entitled to do that. However, it's left this massive oversaturation of big corporate podcasts with big names and a lot of those podcasts actually aren't decent quality because no one who's involved in it is doing it for the passion of the work. And this is crushing smaller independent podcasts who are, it's now harder to find small independent podcasts. So support small independent podcasts in any way you can. Back to Topographica Hibernica. So Gerald's book comes out in the 1100s. Printing isn't invented. There's not a massive amount of copies being made. I believe only 10 copies exist now, which is, for the 1100s, that, that would have made it a bestseller. If you made a book in the 1100s, Someone else literally had to sit down. A scribe had to sit down 
and handwrite that book out and make a copy of it. That's how books existed in the 1100s. And 10 copies of Gerald's books survive, which means maybe a 100 were made. This book was a big deal in the 1100s. Who was it made for, though? Like, if you've got a book... Like, I'm trying to compare this manuscript to the contemporary British tabloids in terms of... If you look at modern British tabloids, what they do... They will subjugate a group of people. They will demonise refugees. If you look at the history of, like, the Sun or the Daily Mail, they have a huge history of anti-Irish propaganda. You'll find... British tabloids also, in times of war, they'll always justify war against the country. They will be dishonest about other countries. They will other the people of another nation. They'll create this, this, a type of propaganda that perpetuates the dominant narrative of power. And that's what Gerald's book was doing. But who the fuck is it for if there's only like, 30 copies flying around the place. Who was it for? So Gerald's manuscript would have been written on vellum. Vellum is stretched calf skin. Is it lamb skin or calf skin? Stretched calf skin, I believe. And the stories and recountings of Ireland in this book were accompanied by drawings and illustrations by Gerald himself, in particular on the margins, which was quite unique on the margins. And Gerald painted these in a style called tinted drawing. It was a really simple way to illustrate manuscripts. In The English started it. And how Gerald would have intended this book to be consumed is he probably would have read it himself in front of royal audiences. So Gerald, because he was a, a royal clerk and he, because he was related to so many powerful people, And he was also the tutor. He was King John's tutor. King John of King John's Castle in Limerick. He was was the son of Henry II. He was King John's tutor. So Gerald had access to all these incredibly powerful dukes and kings and knights. And he would host dinners and he'd read from his book Topographica Hibernica and tell them all about Ireland. But what he'd also do is... These tinted drawings that are on vellum. Vellum calfskin lets light through it very easily. So you would have held up the page and allowed some light from a candle or whatever to pass through the back of the page and this would then illuminate the drawings on the page a little bit like a like a poor man's stained glass window in a way. And Gerald would have been telling all these rich, powerful people oh, Ireland is like this and they've got fucking birds hanging off trees and the women turn into rabbits and they go sucking each other's tits and the wealthy, powerful decision makers who are his audience, they're horrified, they're shocked, they're dehumanising the Irish, they're laughing at the Irish. It's sensationalised stuff. It's everything a tabloid does except Gerald's audience isn't the public at large. It's the small amount of powerful people who actually make decisions and an act of violence. So Gerald would have started off reading this book over dinner and people are interested in, wow, I feel smart, I feel educated, learning about these fish and these badgers and these beavers. 
I feel so worldly. I feel like I'm in Ireland. Tell me, Gerald, about this, this new land we've conquered. So he establishes his authority at the start. It makes the, the listener feel intelligent. And then there's one particular drawn about halfway through. And I can just imagine in the, in the 12th century what this would have done to the mostly male, small, rich audience that would have been watching. So it's a drawing of an Irish woman, green skin and long hair and a shawl. And she's shifting a goat. So it's an Irish woman. There's a goat standing on two legs on a boner. And this Irish woman is shoving her tongue down the goat's throat. And this is drawn in the book. And the power of that image. Imagine seeing that in the 12th century. The people would have been like, oh my God, so unchristian, so so savage. But also, it's the bizarre sex news part of, of the British tabloid. Like tabloids today, like the Sunday sport the ones that are really fucking bizarre. You open up that in the middle of it and you'll have a fake story where it's like woman in Manchester sucks off Alsatian and then you'll have a photograph of someone and then a photograph of the Alsatian and you read the story and it does the exact same as that. You're horrified. You're shocked. You feel naughty because you're reading something that you shouldn't be reading about and it's taboo and it has to do with sex you're laughing, you're judging another person. This is what Gerald's book would have done for aristocratic audiences in the 12th century. And let's read what Gerald wrote about this woman who's shifting a goat. Roderick, the king of Connacht, had a white tame goat, remarkable for its flowing hair and the length of its horns. The goat had intercourse, bestially, with the woman to whose care it had been committed the wretched creature having seduced it to become the instrument of gratifying her unnatural lust. How brutally does the lord of brutes discarding his natural privileges descend to the level of brutes when he, rational animal, submits to such intercourse with a beast. Now the aristocrats who would have been listening to that are going, Oh my God, Oh, she's fucking a goat. She's shifting a goat. Look at the goat's cock. Look at the goat's erection looking at this drawing but the propaganda there is it's the king of Connacht's goat so what it's doing there is it's delegitimizing the royalty of Ireland Ireland has got all these kings and the Normans are taking over so everyone is, is laughing about this story of the woman and the goat but the important thing is that it's happening under the king's watch now you have dukes and lords and kings Going, yeah, we're right to conquer those Irish. Holy fuck. I'd never I'd never let a woman fuck a goat. Oh my god. And then Gerald, the next page, you have this bizarre drawing altogether of a woman and she's combing her hair, but she has a beard as well. And Gerald had been to Limerick and he writes about Duvenal, King of Limerick, had a woman with a beard down to her navel, and also a crest like a colt of a year old which stretched from the top of her neck down to her backbone and was covered with hair. And the woman, thus remarkable for two monstrous deformities, was not a hermaphrodite, 
but in other respects had the parts of a woman, and she constantly attended the court, the object of ridicule. Also, there was a woman seen attending the court in Connacht, who partook of the nature of both sexes and was a hermaphrodite, and on the right side of her face she had a long and thick beard, which covered both sides of her lips to the middle of her chin, like a man. On the left, her lips and chin were smooth and hairless, like a woman. So you have Gerald there again talking about the royalty of Ireland, where they keep these women in the courts, and one half of the woman is a man, and one half of the woman is a woman, and you don't know what it is. And you see this emergent theme in, in the manuscript of misogyny, transphobia, being read out to a powerful elite. Any one of these stories you could find in, in the fucking Sunday sport. This is tabloid fodder in the 12th century with dangerous implications, dangerous propaganda. Now everybody around the table at dinner is just fascinated. They feel intellectual because he's told them all that shit about nature and geography. Now they're straight into tabloid fodder. And then what does he do? He says, in Wicklow, at the time of Morris Fitzgerald. Now get that second name, Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald is a Norman name. So he says, Morris Fitzgerald held possession in that territory and castle. There was seen a man-monster, if he may be called a man, the whole of whose body was human, except the extremities, which were those of an ox. And they have the shape of hooves from the joints, and connected at the arms were his feet and his legs. He was half man, half ox. He frequented for some time the court of Morris Fitzgerald's, coming daily for dinner, and the food was served, he took up, and between the fissures of his cloven hooves, which he used as hands, he was at last secretly put to death, a faith of which he was not deserving in consequence of the jibes with which the young men about the castle assailed the natives of the country for begetting such monsters by intercourse with cows. So what makes that story different is that he's basically saying that that up in Wicklow, like he literally says it afterwards, he goes, it is a fact that shortly before the arrival of the English in the island, a cow gave birth to a man-calf, the fruit of a union between man and a cow in the mountains of Glendalough. So what Gerald is saying there, and what makes it so clever is propaganda, he goes... Up in Wicklow there was a half man half cow Because they fuck cows in Wicklow They're fucking cows in Ireland And they're giving birth to half cows and half humans But by saying that the cow came into the court of Morris Fitzgerald Morris Fitzgerald is a Norman lord in Ireland He's a coloniser And Morris Fitzgerald Because he, he's a Norman Because he's, he has com- the compassion of God He invites the half man half cow into his court and he feeds him and he feels sorry for him and then he puts the the half man half cow to death secretly with dignity and he he assails the rotten horrible Irish people who are fucking cows and creating half cow half man and that there is that beautiful propaganda so you've got the king of Limerick with a woman who's half woman half man then you've got the king of Connacht who's absolutely has all these women fucking goats but then the Norman Morris Fitzgerald has got the compassion this poor half cow half man 
And the ideology that's being promoted there is that, like, Morris is cleansing the land. That pork half-man, half-cow has been put to death, but there'll be no more. And the rich, wealthy dukes and kings that are listening to this story around dinner now feel as if they've been told a moral tale about what they must do in Ireland to, to cleanse it of the savages who are, who are fucking animals. And then he's got another chapter after that that says the, the cocks in Ireland crow at different hours from those in other countries. So he goes into a paragraph to say that Ireland is so fucked up so fucked up and so full of sin that the poor old roosters don't even know when it's morning. And then he says, of wolves which whelped in the month of December. The poor old wolves in Ireland howl in December when they shouldn't even be howling at all. The ravens and the owls which once had young ones at Christmas. So even the birds are laying eggs and giving birth at the wrong time of year. Everything about Ireland is fucked up and wrong and needs fixing. And then he moves on. He's m- moved on from the shock and shit now. And taking them back on a journey that's a bit more grounded in reality. And everyone, everyone's a bit calmer around the dinner table. And he speaks about of a book miraculously written. Now this actually sounds nice. But it's actually quite insidious. Among all the miracles in Kildare. None appears to be more wonderful than the marvellous book. Which they say was written in the time of the Virgin St. Bridget. Now most people think he's talking about the Book of Kells there. I mentioned there like from about 500 to 1000. Ireland was, was just a world leader in the production of art and illuminated manuscripts. And the Book of Kells is one of the most important and brilliant pieces of art in the world. The Book of Kells is, is phenomenal. The artistry, the detail, the work that went into it. It's unparalleled at the time. It was famous within the known world at the time. So Gerald is talking about the Book of Kells. Now you can't shit on the Book of Kells. You can't. So so if the lords around the dinner table are listening to Gerald's book. And they're saying. But Gerald. If they're there like fucking shifting goats and fucking cows. How can they create such beautiful art like the Book of Kells? We've seen it. It's amazing. I mean, surely there must be something good about these Irish. Because the thing is, something like an incredibly made illuminated manuscript, in the eyes of the Normans, that's highly civilised behaviour. It's civilised and it's enviable and it's the sign of an advanced society. To create such beautiful manuscripts is the sign of an advanced society. So Gerald has to figure figure out a way to take it down a peg. And he does it by basically saying, oh, that book, yeah, it was made in Ireland. But here's what happened. So the monk that the monks that were making the Book of Kells, they knew they wanted to make something really beautiful. But they didn't have the skill. They couldn't do it. So what happened was an angel appeared to him. And the angel said to him, don't worry. Just go to bed and wake up the next morning and I'll do it for you. So that's how Gerald explains the Book of Kells. Angels visited the monks of Ireland and made it for them. And that's why Ireland produced such a beautiful, brilliant, illuminated manuscript. And you can see the jealousy in it because Gerald's drawings are shit. Like, Gerald has illustrated his own book and it's full of all these, but they're just shit caricatures, like. 
It's nothing compared to the Book of Kells. But here he is shitting on it. It's like, fuck, the Book of Kells. I'm trying to portray these people as savages and they have all these wonderful books. What can I say? Brilliant. The angels wrote it. The angels made the book, not the paddies. So you can imagine his dinner audience now going, yeah, great, that makes sense. But then he follows that up by saying, but don't worry, no, they're, they're shit at the illuminated manuscripts, but I tell you what they're amazing at. Fucking music. Because here's the thing. Music would not have really been valued within Norman culture. Gerald even says it himself in the book. He says that mu- the music of England isn't a patch on the music that's being made in Ireland and that it's a shame that the, the English people and the Welsh people don't appreciate music as much. But the Irish are incredible musicians. It's unlike anything you've ever heard of. This, they have harps. They have drums. It's incredible music. But the thing there is that in the eyes of the Normans at the time, the creation of music, in particular folk music, would not have been considered an intellectual pursuit. It would not have been considered the hallmarks of a civilised society. The creation of music was too too physical, too base. But Gerald still gives the Irish great compliments, like despite their savagery, they are unparalleled musicians. And that's that's a racist trope that carried on in, in British colonisation to many different cultures, in particular the p- people in Africa that were colonised by the British. You see that same trope. Oh, they're fantastic musicians. They don't have written language, but oh, the, the music they make is phenomenal. Great musicians. Then he goes on to describe... And this is one of the things that I really get pissed off about with this book. So, Gerald reads out several biblical stories. Stories from the Bible. Now, one of the things that Ireland did during that golden age is the monks in Irish monasteries would have had access to biblical stories. And a lot of them kind of went, none of these Bible stories mention Ireland. So, like, there's an Irish story of Noah's flood, but one of Noah's daughters makes her way to Ireland. There's a story of the Tower of Babel, and an Irish character finds his way into the story of the Tower of Babel, and that's how the Irish language was born. So you have all these rich, creative Irish interpretations of the Bible that try to include Ireland in the Bible story. But Gerald kind of includes them as, look at what these fucking paddies are doing to the Bible. Look at what they're doing. They're writing themselves into it. Can't fucking put up with this shit. That's not how it's supposed to be. That's not how the Bible is written. And this would have been horrendous at the time. And that was one of the things that really pissed off the Pope. That the Irish are off there on their own with their big fancy fucking monasteries. And they're rewriting the Bible to include Paddy in it. And then finally, as he gets near the end of the book, that's when the real vitriol comes out. In a chapter called Of the Character, Customs and Habits of This People. I have considered it not superfluous to give a short account of the condition of this nation, both bodily and mentally. I mean their state of cultivation, both interior and exterior. This people are not tenderly nursed from their birth as others are. For besides the rude fare they receive from the parents which is only sufficient for their sustenance, 
the rest is left to nature. So he's saying there that Irish children aren't raised. They're just let out to be wild like animals. Their want of civilization shows both in their dress and mental culture makes them a barbarous people. The Irish are a rude people, subsisting on the produce of their cattle only and living themselves like beasts. A people that has not yet departed from the primitive habits of pastoral life. Mankind progresses from the forest to the field, from the field to the town and to the social condition of citizens. But this nation, holding agricultural labour in contempt. And here's the big one. This would have been a really big deal at the time, obviously. This would have been the most offensive thing he could say. Um, The faith having been planted in the island from the time of St. Patrick so many ages ago and propagated almost ever since. It is wonderful that this nation should remain to this day so very ignorant of the rudiments of Christianity. It is indeed a filthy race, a race sunk in vice, a race more ignorant than all other nations of the first principles of faith. They frequent not the church of God. They don't contract marriages, nor do they shun incestuous connections. What is most detestable and not only contrary to the gospel, but to everything that is right in many parts of Ireland, brothers, I will not say marry, but seduce and debauch the wives of their brothers deceased. They're given to treachery more than any other nation and never keep the faith they have pledged. Neither shame nor fear withholding them from constantly violating the most solemn obligations which when entered into with themselves they are above all things anxious to have observed. So he goes on and on and on by just saying the Irish are untrustworthy, violent, filthy, incestuous, horrible, horrendous people. The most rotten, horrendous people on this earth. So what he's done is he's, through reading this book and doing it over dinner and showing everybody the fucking, the, 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 the drawings and all of this shit, you start off feeling smart. Then you're laughing and jeering at the Irish. You're horrified. You're titillated at the bestiality. He's discrediting things like the Book of Kells in case for, for a second there you're thinking, ah, fuck it, they're handy artists. And he goes, no, fuck that. But they're good musicians, though. We don't give a shit about music. They're good at that. Finally, he lays into the Irish by calling us just filthy, lazy, treacherous bollockses. And when you think it's all over, he finishes it with the final chapter, which is of a new and monstrous way of inaugurating their kings. He says, a white mayor is led into the midst of them. And he is to be, who is to be inaugurated, not as a prince, but as a brute, not as a king, but as an outlaw comes before the people on all fours, confessing himself a beast with no less impudence than imprudence. The mare, the horse, a female horse, being immediately killed and cut into pieces and boiled, a bath is prepared for him from the broth. Sitting in this, he eats the flesh which is brought to him, the people standing around and partaking in it also. He is also required to drink of the broth in which he is bathed. So basically, Gerald says in the book, in order to become a king in Ireland, you have to get down on all fours, you have to fuck a horse, then you have to chop the horse up, then you have to put the horse's body into a boiling hot bath, you have to cook the horse, then you have to climb into the boiling hot bath with the horse's chopped up body, then you have to eat the meat in the bath yourself while you are also boiling, and then everyone around you has to come along and reach into your boiling bath water and eat the horse you just fucked. So, that right there, that's it. It's just like, the, the, 
But don't worry about conquering these people. They don't have leaders. They don't have kings. They're, that's not real royalty. They're fucking and eating horses. And also, what, what does it mean there for to kill, eat or have sex with a horse? Why is that so bad in the context of the time? Like even today, that's not great. But in the 12th century, why is that so bad? And did the Irish even do this with horses? Probably not. Because if you want to see the roots of why that's such a taboo, if you go back to 732, which is like 400 years before this book is even written, but you go back to 732 and you'll see that Pope Gregory III sent a letter to Boniface asking him to abolish the pagan custom of slaughtering and eating horses. Horse sacrifice was a thing with certain tribes of Europe. Horse sacrifice was a thing. The Vikings sacrificed horses. And basically, do you know the way in Judaism or in Islam you don't eat pork? And you think, well, Christianity doesn't have anything like that. It does. Fucking horse meat. So... In the 700s, the Pope at the time made a concerted effort to associate either the sacrifice or eating of horses with pagan traditions, unchristian, evil, pagan, savage traditions. So when this accusation against the Irish arrives in Topographia Hibernica in the 1200s, this is like the worst shit you could say about someone. These are pagans. They're sacrificing, eating and fucking horses. Cleanse them. Save them teach them the way of Christ that just delegitimizes everything that's your propaganda your ideology your permission for anyone who was doubting or wondering like we're Norman Christians should we really be conquering and subjugating this other nation of Christians that have these illuminated manuscripts this these people who appear on the surface to be really educated and civilized and cultured should we really be conquering them yeah absolutely look at what they're doing to the horses Look at the women turning into hairs and sucking tits. And the bizarre irony there as well is, I mentioned at the start about, so Pope Adrian gave permission to the King of King Henry II of England to go, go over there and colonise Ireland. And Henry waited 20 years to do it. Henry wasn't too interested in conquering Ireland, to be honest. He just wasn't that interested. What happened that made him do it? Why, why did he get this permission from the Pope and then decide to have a crack at it 20 years later? Because King Henry murdered the Archbishop of Canterbury. King Henry, big posh Norman King of England, had a feud with the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is the, the highest bishop in the country. The Archbishop of Canterbury is the only person who can inaugurate a King of England so if you want to become a king of England, the Archbishop of Canterbury has to inaugurate you. Henry had him killed and then was wanted for it. So in order to create a distraction, he invaded Ireland. So that's the irony of it. They're talking about how illegitimate kings are in Ireland because they're not inaugurated properly. And Henry killed the Archbishop of Canterbury. So that, that right there, that book from the 12th century which I adore. I love reading it. I read it frequently. And it's an enjoyable book and it's it's a long time ago and it's 
I like to read it with pleasure and I find it, I find it funny. But it's also the beginning of anti-Irish propaganda and, and when I compare it to British tabloids, it's the exact same shit as British tabloids. It does the same job. And a lot of the anti-Irish racism, the tropes about us being lazy, stupid, treacherous, crafty, not wanting to do work, the genetics of that toxicity and that propaganda and that racism survived all the way through British colonisation of the world whenever it was time to subjugate India, to subjugate Africa. Survived then and even last year with Brexit. When Brexit happened and when it looked like Ireland was becoming a problem for Brexit and the British tabloids started roaring out the same old tired anti-Irishness and you can trace its genes all the way back to that in the fucking uh, 1200s. So that's this week's hot take. I hope you enjoyed that. I don't know what I'll be back with next week. I'm going to sign off now and then after I sign off I'm going to come back on with my segment where I play a little song from my Twitch stream. If you're not interested in that, if you have no interest in my hyper-real musical you don't have to listen to it. You can sign off right now. If you are interested, you can stick around till after the break. Dog bless. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Right, so this is a new segment I've added to the podcast. Every week, I go onto a live streaming website called Twitch.tv twitch.tv forward slash the blind boy podcast and what I've been doing for the past year over lockdown is I'm doing a hyper real musical project so basically I have a bunch of recording equipment with me and musical instruments and it's in front of a live audience a live streaming audience and I play a video game called Red Dead Redemption 2 which is a digital recreation of the Wild West and what I do is I wander around this video game and I write songs in the moment. I literally make song, songs up on the spot and I produce them and I mix them in the moment as an act of improvised creativity where people are watching and people can participate and comment as it's happening so that art is being created in the moment and it's not about the finished piece, it's about the process. Also, what I enjoy about it, for me, it's a new way of making music. It's a new way of writing songs. I'm writing songs in a hyper-real digital environment using a video game and the events that happen to trigger creativity. So, I'll play you a little song. This one is actually from last Thursday. And I don't even think I have to. I'm not even going to explain it, alright? I'm wandering around a video game in the Wild West and I just wrote a song in the moment. I'd made a nice little instrumental piece that I'd built up. It took about... 15 minutes to make live and then I did a spoken word piece over it responding to what was happening on screen and 
I was really happy with the results. And also as well, if you heard the song at the end of last week's podcast, the audio fidelity wasn't great. But now, because of all the practice I've put in, I'm much happier with the audio fidelity I'm getting. So, And also with this song, I got to mix in some of the sound effects from the game. It was raining in the game, so it turned up the sound of the rain and it actually worked quite well atmospherically. Um, so yeah, this is called Snortin' Coke off the cock of Skinny Jesus. And it was created live. Everything was created and recorded live. You can actually see the video if you want. Go onto my Twitch stream, it'll still be up if you want to see me making it. Turn up that rain, man. Outside in the rain Underneath the lamp light Scratching my bollocks with a gun in my shoulder The purple sky hangs up above I'm standing underneath a gun half asleep Out in Jamesboro Torrential rain coming in from the sideways Type of rain that goes into your ear You'd be half deaf in one ear and you can't put in your ear pad. And the back was getting battled off me. My back was getting battled with the rain. And I was terrified that I'd collapse and get set onto fire. Cause there's a lamp behind me there. It's one of them lamps when you shoot it, it goes on fire. Violets. Bollocks, I'm after setting fire to the farm. Farms after going in fire during the middle of a storm. And we're all fucked, man. We're all going to hell. I'm burning the crucifix of the skinny Jesus. I'm burning, burning the crucifix of the skinny Jesus with no arms. I got Christ with no arms and I put him to a cross and I burnt the skinny Jesus. Burning the skinny Jesus and the straight crucifix, man. Don't allow the cork after straight crucifix. Don't allow the lines of cork after straight crucifix. Skinny Jesus. Skinny Jesus with no arms and I don't I don't cork after length of his dick. Skinny Jesus and the crucifix don't cork after length of his dick. Good night, everybody. <laughs>